my dad was such a connector. Almost everyone felt like he was their friend. He was a very senior American diplomat on a professional level, one of our best. People revered him quite a lot. You know, he'd call up and say, hey, Mike, this is Spike. Oh, yes, Mr. Ambassador, but he was down to earth. I end up getting a call. The ambassador's just been taken. He's being held. The hotel people were upset. They said he was up on the second floor. Very soon, some plainclothes Russian guys showed up. In my mind, I knew they were KGB guys just by the way they comported themselves. Very scary that these people were going to, you know, I don't know, start firing off in all directions. We did not feel that we had control. But it was clear that the Soviets didn't want to get any advice from us. I received a phone call somewhere in the middle of the night. She said, oh, they've, you know, they've kidnapped your father. Three guys came up, kicked in the door, and went in, and then shooting immediately started. I don't think it was 40, 45 seconds, but it was a long time. We came into the room and looked to the right, and the ambassador was in a chair, slumped over. That obviously was the worst day of my life. You don't go around killing American diplomats. The Soviets know that as well as anyone. The news reached Washington at dawn on Valentine's Day, 1979. Spike Dubbs, one of the United States' most respected diplomats, was dead. He'd been kidnapped and killed in the capital of a third world country most Americans had never heard of, but a country that would soon explode into the headlines worldwide, where it remains to this day. I'm Arthur Kent, inviting you to follow as we investigate one of the most troubling cold cases of the Cold War. Because 40 years later, the questions remain. Who killed Spike Dubbs? Who benefited from his death? Who were the kidnappers? Why did they never communicate with Spike's embassy team or any U.S. authorities? Why did almost all the physical evidence disappear right after the savage armed assault on the hotel room where he was held captive? Why did the officials who ordered that assault, Soviets and Afghan communists, contrive a cover-up? A veil of deceptions and lies and confusion the Russians who were party to the assault continue to hide behind, even now. And how did this crime contribute to Afghanistan's catastrophe? Forty continuous years of war. And how could solving it actually help point the way to peace? Now the subject of negotiations between the U.S. and the Taliban. We'll visit Spike's daughter, Lindsay, and the colleagues and friends who knew him best. We'll hear from two American Foreign Service officers who witnessed the debacle at the Hotel Kabul who helped carry the body of their friend and boss from room 117. And we'll hear from the man witnesses say signaled the shooting to start. He's a retired colonel of the KGB, the State Security Committee, the forerunner of today's Russian FSB and SVR intelligence services. His story and those of his fellow Russian intelligence officers give new clues about the murder of Spike Dubbs and the tradecraft used by President Putin's spies today. We'll let you decide. Why is this cold case from the Cold War still on ice? See if you don't agree with what the evidence tells us, because reinvestigating this crime is already yielding results. There might finally be an answer to the question, who murdered Spike Dubbs? Let's take a drive back to 1979. Rod Stewart was on the radio. 
Two movies about the Vietnam War, The Deer Hunter and Coming Home, competed for best picture. The threat of world war was real. Russia and the US were locked in a nuclear arms race. The hard man of Soviet communism led by Leonid Brezhnev confronted an untested first term American president, Jimmy Carter. Carter's priority was locking Russia into a treaty limiting nuclear weapons, SALT II. But it would be Afghanistan and Russian aggression there that set the doomsday clock ticking on Jimmy Carter's hopes for a second term. And that began with the kidnapping and murder of his representative to Kabul, a seasoned 58-year-old Navy veteran and statesman named Adolf Dubbs. Spike, to all who knew him. I arrived there in January 1978, and you could sense that there was percolation and things going on as far as the Soviets, specifically Russia. Doug Wankel was posted to the U.S. Embassy in Kabul for the Drug Enforcement Administration. It was a fourth world country, not even third world, you know, and, and to get there and to walk there and to think about Tamerlane, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, the great game between the Russians and the uh, British that had gone on a century or so before. It, it was really qu uh, quite interesting. Doug Wankel's position put him in regular contact with top U.S. officials and the Afghan police. I was the DEA country attaché in Afghanistan. I was the advisor to the U.S. ambassador, and I also worked very closely with the Afghan authorities at the Ministry of Interior to do some work as far as intelligence concerning cultivation of opium, cultivation and uh, manufacturing of the hashish from the cannabis in Afghanistan, as well as uh, uh, help do some training of the uh, Afghan law enforcement authorities. But the people were friendly, they were warm. I'm a uh, blue collar guy originally from uh, the Midwest of the United States. I liken the people of Afghanistan a lot to that blue collar type Midwestern, what you see is what you get. We had one assistant, uh, office assistant and driver, Awaz Ali who took good care of me when I got there, and uh, it was like I was adopted and could do no wrong. So I got to, to, to visualize and see things from a very safe distance from whether it was a vehicle or walking on the street or doing whatever. It was very, very interesting uh, to me. In April of 1978, just months after Doug Wankel's arrival in Kabul, an army faction loyal to Afghanistan's Soviet-backed Communist Party, the PDPA, murdered the Afghan president. The communists' leader, Taraki, was installed as the new president, along with an American-educated foreign minister, Hafizullah Amin. The new regime was long on doctrine and short on popular support. Armed opposition broke out in the countryside. The communists arrested and jailed thousands of innocent people. Mass executions followed. Just months into this chaotic regime, a new American ambassador was assigned to Kabul. Ambassador Dubbs arrived in Afghanistan with quite a lot of fanfare. People had heard a lot about him. The uh, foreign service officers at the State Department were very excited about having him come. Everybody would say, Spike, Spike, why does the guy use the name Spike Dubbs? I asked him one day, I, we, were, we were just talking, and I said, uh, Ambassador, your name is not Spike Dubbs. He says, look, I was raised by my mother, a tremendous woman, wonderful woman. And, but she and I both knew that after probably the early, late 30s, early 1940s, the name Adolf was not really going to be a name that was going to be well received in any quarter of the world. So my name became Spike, and it's almost officially Spike. So I'm, you'll never hear anybody refer to me as Adolf Dubs or call me Adolf Dubs, whatever, I'm Spike. 
Spike would often entertain embassy staffers in his residence. He played piano for sing-alongs, often gospel tunes and spirituals. He was personable. First of all, he had great interpersonal skills, but he had another talent that you don't see very often. He was Ambassador Dubs during workday and during official functions, and you knew that, and you never lost sight of that, and you certainly gave him the deference and gave him the respect that that position entitlement. But he was the individual that, in his off-duty hours, when he was out of his suit, he would come to the campfire that we would have set up sometime where guys would just be sitting around strumming guitars. He'd actually take a guitar strum and sing along with guys and be one of the boys, one of the group, if you will. And he was that type of person that could pull that off, where he could be with you and be one of you the, during the evening, but next day during the day, there was no doubt that he was the ambassador and you held him in that position and with that esteem that went with that. Turn left onto 20 Street Southwest. We've come to the other side of the world from Kabul, Afghanistan. We're north of Washington, D.C., in the rolling green hills along the Shenandoah River. This is home to Spike's daughter, Lindsay Dubs McLaughlin. As a youngster, Lindsay's life revolved not only around her father, but his life's work, too. I guess you could say I was born into the U.S. State Department. I was living the life of a Foreign Service brat. <laughs> you know, postings here and there for two years or three years, and then back in D.C. and that sort of thing. At the age of seven, her father's work landed the family in Moscow during interesting times, a time that became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, October 1962. All I know is some very stern-looking people came into my classroom and told me to get on a bus with me and all the other American children only. They had come to take us back to the embassy. I remember we drove through crowds beginning to form in front of the embassy, and, and they had pulled some tanks up around in front, but our bus was able to come on through into the embassy compound. They shut the gates, and then all the women and children were uh, in the lower floors and they helped us move up to the top, upper floors of the embassy and they boarded up the windows down below and you know and then we waited my dad meanwhile was upstairs where all the officers were trying to um, negotiate through this crisis and I remember him telling me his he was he as a junior officer in the political department who spoke Russian and had experience uh, some experience with the Soviets and in that field it was his job to actually monitor the cables that were coming back and forth between the White House and Khrushchev so um, he was he was reading the cables cables and transmitting them to the White House and then back and forth. He told me later there was a certain point in all of this back and forth where he kind of felt a lot better, felt some sense of relief because he could tell just from the language and the way that things were beginning to be worded that Khrushchev was going to, you know, retreat from his position and things were going to calm down. In 1978, Spike was named U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. At the time, Lindsay was in college in D.C., so she didn't make the move to Kabul. A world now separating them, Spike would retire to his writing desk every Sunday, composing a three- or four-page handwritten letter to Lindsay. My dearest Lindsay, I've been cordially received by the chairman of the Revolutionary Council and Prime Minister and other members of the cabinet. 
I plan on calling on all 21. There is no doubt that they want good relations with us, knowing that we can provide much needed economic and technical assistance. This nation needs help from where it can get it. Where this government will eventually go is uncertain at this point. Internal problems abound and the Soviet presence is very pervasive. Nevertheless, we hope that our activities here will provide it with some room for maneuver so that it can avoid the all-encompassing embrace of the Soviets. We shall see. Much love and affection, Dad. We had a close relationship. We wrote back and forth a lot. You've been kind enough to share some of your correspondence, your, your father's letters to you. And mm -hmm. you can't help but be struck that his letters uh, reflect a really pronounced spiritualism. What was the, the background to that? He told me at one point that when he was in high school, uh, he had even thought about entering the ministry. Those kinds of questions about, you know, meaning in life, how to, how to connect with people, how to bring the possibility of reconciliation into the world, all of that kind of stuff began very young with him, and that's why he even considered the ministry. But he ended up not going into seminary. He chose to go to college instead. Uh, then World War II came, and of course, like everyone... <laughs> His age at that time in the U.S., he enlisted right away in the in the Navy and went off to war. And I believe that that experience really changed his understanding. He did not lose this sense of wanting to, you know, bring people together and see how the world could work better. He didn't lose that, but he came to a sense that really that the the ministry was not the way for him. That he wanted to take those kinds of ideals into diplomacy, into the world of, of diplomacy. And that's what motivated him to sign up for the Foreign Service. Tell me a bit more about that philosophy, your father's philosophy, with regard to the way he thought world affairs might come together. He always told me that things work better when people are feeling more secure with one another, more economically. There's economic reciprocity. There's uh, an openness to one another in terms of uh, culture and art, and that you build those kinds of connections. And then that opens doors to actually having diplomatic relations, you know, on a on the higher national level, more possible to reach a place of, I guess you could say, peace and making both countries feel more secure. And so that was his approach, rather than setting up walls and building barriers. Although he was, I wouldn't say that he was at all, he was sort of the opposite of namby-pamby, you know, he was very... <laughs> clear about this is what our policy is, and he wasn't at all wishy-washy about that. The route goes up over the Salang Pass at an elevation of about 12,000 feet. Once we turned off the main road, the going was rough, but the scenery quite spectacular. Of greatest interest was seeing what life was like in the deep countryside. It seemed pretty primitive in some respects, but I couldn't help but feel that the people were getting along all right on land that has been farmed for centuries. Enjoyed your comments about the power plays in Afghanistan and how the situation appears to you. Outwardly, the situation is rather calm here in Kabul, but the regime rants every day in the press about the black reactionaries and the Muslim devils who are using religion as a mask to conduct counter-revolutionary activities. 
Given the history of this country and people, I do not rule out a violent attempt to change things. The big question then would be, in what direction? In the meantime, I feel that our leverage here is marginal. So we will have to sit on the sidelines pretty much as observers rather than significant actors in events. Spike took up his post in Kabul in July of 1978. When summer turned to autumn, he was missing his second wife, Marianne, and his daughter, Lindsay. He wrote, asking if they might want to spend Christmas in Afghanistan. He really missed me, and I missed him, and he was very eager to have me come for the holiday. I was delighted with this country. We traveled all over the place, and throughout that whole trip, I had no inkling that there was this terrible event and crisis that was going to happen just months from then. But beneath the surface, Afghanistan was on the verge of violent upheaval. An armed, anti-communist rebellion was spreading. Religious conservatives and urban progressives resisted the PDPA regime. For their part, President Taraki and his foreign minister Amin were increasingly at each other's throats, even as their own faction threatened rival communists. Arrests, torture, and summary executions continued. An estimated 12,000 Afghans would die at the regime's hands by the end of 1979. All of this concerned the Americans in Kabul, but it terrified the Soviets. They were the Afghan communists' patrons, but their protégés were losing what little public support they had secured. Infighting and repression left the regime teetering, a danger to everyone. Yet on the surface, Kabul's foreign diplomatic community was bustling and at ease. A false sense of security, and one that was about to be shattered forever. The People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, that is the Communist Party of Afghanistan, was split in two wings. Mike Malinowski was the consul at the U.S. Embassy. In retrospect, he says, the Afghan communists' infighting posed a graver threat than Kabul's diplomatic corps realized, as became obvious when Mike's boss, Spike Dubbs, set off to work in his chauffeured Cadillac sedan on Valentine's Day, 1979. As normal, he would travel with just his driver in a limo. The threat wasn't analyzed as being high enough for him to have a full-time bodyguard. Now, obviously, in retrospect, that was an error. Mike had just arrived at his office on the ground floor of the embassy. At 8.45, Spike's Afghan driver, Go Muhammad, rushed in from the parking lot. He said four policemen had stopped the car in traffic. At gunpoint, he was ordered to drive to the nearby Hotel Kabul. There the gunman forced Spike out of the car and into the hotel. On the day that this happened, February 14th, Valentine's Day of all days, it was the day that our human rights report was being released in Washington. And obviously it was going to be very critical of the uh, PDPA and their sorry record of uh, human rights. So when his driver, Gul Mohammed, came to the embassy to report that the ambassador had been taken by what he described as four policemen, we started down to the uh, Cabo Hotel where he was supposedly being held in uh, anger, being, well, those bastards, you know. We did this human rights report, and this is their, their ham-fisted uh, response. Well, as we were driving down to the hotel, in retrospect, we started to think, well, this doesn't really make sense. Why, if they did this, would they take him to a private hotel? The DEA's Doug Wankel was across town at the time. 
I end up getting a call and I said, listen, the ambassador's just been taken. He's being held at the Kabul Hotel. Get over there. There are some people there now and lend your abilities and, and your background to see what we can do to get this situation resolved. The hotel people were upset. They said he was up on the second floor. One thing that struck me immediately as I arrived there, it was on the second floor of the Kabul Hotel. You go up to the area where uh, he was being held, and as I round the corner there, I see an Afghan guy being dragged down the hall by two Afghan police officers, and they're whipping on him pretty good, kicking him and doing stuff, and you know he's yelling a little bit, and they're dragging him down and taking him out of sight from us. So I said, what's that? Who's that? And one of the guys said, what? that's one of the guys that was inside with the ambassador, and for some reason he left, went down the hall, and these cops caught him running back, and I'm like, oh. At the embassy, Spike's deputy, Bruce Amstutz, had every available officer trying to find the Afghan foreign minister, Amin, and his police strongman, Tarun. Meantime, a group of the embassy's officers gathered at the hotel. We kept saying we can uh, play for time, find out what the kidnappers wanted, see if there could be a negotiation. Really didn't know who these people were that had him, what they really wanted at that point in time. We just knew that we needed to try and communicate, talk to them, drag this thing as much as we could on and on and on to see, see what we could find out. Unfortunately, we didn't have much opportunity because very soon some plainclothes Russian guys showed up. In my mind, I knew they were KGB guys just by the way they comported themselves. Consul Mike Malinowski can still remember that comportment. It worried him. And actually, when they came, they started to calm the Afghans down, which at first looked you know, good that somebody competent in charge was there. But shortly after, as we kept trying to get influence into the Soviets, saying, for example, that in our uh, experience, it's very good in these, this type of situation to bring in professional negotiators and psychologists to uh, try to effect a peaceful uh, relief. But it was clear that the Soviets didn't want to get any advice from us. The senior officer started to take command over the Afghan security forces, ordering them around, again, avoiding us. Soon we knew that there were soldiers across the street in the bank of Afghanistan, also the finance ministry, that were being posted up there. Several of the U.S. Embassy staffers recognized the lead KGB man. He was known to be in charge of security for the Soviet embassy. His name, Sergei Bakhtarin. Lieutenant Colonel, Committee for State Security. Sturdy, grim-faced, and in a black hat and coat, he cut an almost cliché spy-versus-spy figure. But he and his junior officers appeared not just to be advising, but commanding the armed Afghan soldiers and police. Soon, it was a face-off. A dozen or so Americans from the embassy, opposite Colonel Bakhtarin's men and communist regime troops. Separating the two camps, a few yards of hallway either side of room 117. It was the Cold War in miniature, a superpower standoff in a stifling old hotel in Southwest Asia. Then we started hearing what we got a little worried about. We heard that word had gotten out to the Afghan marketplace because we were in the middle of some market areas right there where we were at the Kabul Hotel and that the Afghan population, particularly the business people and the others, uh, were talking, were closing up their shop, were leaving to go home, and that was a sign or a signal that obviously troubled the Soviets because they didn't know what they were going to go get ready for, what they were going to go do. 
Meantime, across town, one of the embassy's political officers, Jim Taylor, was at the office of the regime's secret police chief, Tarun. But Tarun wouldn't see him, refused to talk. Jim Taylor eyed a figure standing over Tarun, pointing a finger, apparently issuing instructions. It was another Russian official from the Soviet embassy. Through all of this, the Americans were completely shut out of any and all communications over the kidnapping. The foreign minister, Amin, could not be found. Not at his office, not at the ministry. Spike had met with Amin some 14 times in the preceding months. The two spoke directly, in English. Amin studied at Wisconsin and Columbia universities. But would this relationship work in the captive ambassador's favor or against him? Then things took a turn at the hotel. We were, of course, standing, trying to figure out, okay, what next steps, what can we do, how do we uh, approach this from the standpoint of making the necessary contact, further contact, communication. But that was taken away from us pretty quick by uh, one of the Russian guys. Colonel Bakhtarin approached the ranking member of the U.S. Embassy team, political counselor Bruce Flatine. Could he try calling out and talking with Spike through the door of Room 117? in a language the kidnappers would not understand. Mike Malinowski picks up the story. Bruce Latine, who spoke German as the ambassador did, and with the hope that the kidnappers might, although they were, we felt they probably spoke English, they might not speak German. So they, he tried, Bruce tried to uh, talk to the ambassador, find out, number one, if he was okay, and then number two, to ask some generic questions of, you know, how many, are, how many people are there holding you, what do you think their weapons are, and somehow the uh, kidnappers figured out that uh, Bruce might be getting some uh, intelligence from, from this, so the, he, the kidnappers put a stop to the dialogue. In two brief exchanges, Spike was able only to tell Bruce Flatine he was all right. But mention of a German word similar to revolver panicked the captors. They silenced Spike, ordered Bruce Flatine away. Throughout the entire ordeal, that was the only direct contact U.S. officials had with Spike or the people holding him. Doug Wankel explains. It was a sense of uh, helplessness and frustration to some degree because we did not feel that we had control. We didn't feel we had the authority or the, the ability to take charge to do something. The Russians made it clear that they were there and they were talking, huddling with uh, the Afghan authorities that were there to take whatever action down the road that was going to be taken. Eventually, we were told that the kidnappers had given a deadline for whatever the kidnappers wanted and from the Soviet side to release the ambassador. And at that point, it became clear that security forces were going to rush the room, which again, we thought was a, a bad idea. Finally, one of the Soviets comes over to Gibson. We are going to rescue your ambassador now. We're, going, we're like, no, 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 we're in charge. And we're going to send some of the Afghan people in to rescue your ambassador. So please stand back. And we tried to protest, tried to, and just wasn't hearing it. It wasn't able to be discussed, whatever is final. So we figured, well, we better get ready. So we got a gurney out of the ambulance, and we took it up from the downstairs lobby up to the second floor. There was, at the top of the stairs, there was a little sitting area. And then at the end of that, there was a, a corridor where the hotel rooms would go off on one side or the other. Now, the ambassador was held in a room that was on the left side of the corridor overlooking the street. So we were prepared that if they were going to rush the room, we were going to try to be right behind and secure the ambassador and get him whatever medical attention he needed. 
Word went to the embassy by two-way radio, an assault was imminent. Still, the embassy had been unable to speak directly with top Afghan regime officials, much less the men holding Spike. In Washington, the State Department's operations center was on overload. Spike's ordeal had begun just hours before a mob overran the U.S. embassy in Iran. That incident was resolved on orders from Ayatollah Khomeini, a respite until the hostage crisis in Tehran nine months later. Turning his attention to Spike, State Secretary Cyrus Vance ordered a specialist in hostage negotiations to Kabul. A short distance away in Washington, Lindsay Dubbs was awakened with the news. I received a phone call somewhere in the middle of the night. In fact, I had think I'd been out to see a movie with friends <clears throat> and had come back, and it was later that night. And Marianne, my father's second wife, she called me, you know, and she was very upset. She said, oh, they've kidnapped your father. That was stunning news to, to try to absorb. But, of course, we knew nothing, you know, or, you know, that's all, that's all she was able to tell me. And I, so I put down the phone and kind of, I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen next or what, I was kind of numb and stunned. It was past 12 noon in Kabul. The standoff continued in the corridor outside room 117. But not for much longer, the Americans sensed the Russians were ready to make a move. So at one point, the Soviet senior officer went out to one of the windows with a handkerchief, and it was obvious he was going to give the order for the operation. Three guys came up, kicked in the door, and went in, and then shooting immediately started. I don't think it was 40, 45 seconds, but it was a long time. The firings finally stopped internally in the room and then from the outside. Tell me again, how did the shooting start? It began as soon as the Soviet officer waved his white handkerchief. You're saying a Soviet officer? Yes, directed the fire and directed the rushing of the hotel room. Later, Mike learned the Russian's name from the U.S. Embassy's intelligence officers. He points to the man in an old photograph. Sergei Bakhtarin. As I learned later, Sergei Bakhtarin, yes. Signaled the start of the Signaled assault. Signaled the start of the operation. Not an Afghan officer. No, no, no. A Soviet officer. Oh, yeah. The Soviets were now totally in operational command of the units there at the hotel. When the automatic rifle fire stopped, the Americans were ready to move. Among the crew was Warren Merrick, who worked at the embassy in my counselor section, Douglas Wankel, who was a representative from the Drug Enforcement Agency, also from the embassy, the security officer, Chuck Bowles, and I believe Dr. Lloyd Rotz, who was our embassy medical officer. You were all poised in we the hallway? We were all poised like a relay team or something, holding the gurney, four of us, each with a hold on it in the corners, and we ran down the hall to get in there. Now so, we were a few few steps down the hall when suddenly the firing at this point was over, so we felt it was safe to go in. So we ran down the hall, and at one point the firing had stopped, and then suddenly there were four or five small shots of uh, pistol shots, smaller caliber than the rifle fire, and it was pop, 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 pop. So we were running down, and we heard this, and we stopped. What's that? So that stopped, and then we ran in. You decided, despite hearing even more gunfire, you ran towards the room? We did, yeah, because at that point we, had, we were committed among ourselves to get into the room as fast as possible. But you were unarmed. Well, totally unarmed, yeah. You had a 
a stretcher. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and you ran towards the gunfire? Well, yes, we did, yeah. Doug and Mike were first through the shattered door of room 117. The smoke, the gun smoke, was so accurate, but also so intense that your eyes were watering and we really couldn't see. We got into the room from the outer door into the, into the room itself, and there was a glass door. The bathroom was to the right and sometime a glass door. Now that was all broken, so we ran through it. I think a couple of us got cut up. And then, as soon as we were past that door, we stepped on two dead Afghans. I imagine they were dead. I literally stepped on them as we were going into the room. Then we looked, and the ambassador was off in the corner. We came into the room and looked to the right, and the ambassador was in a chair, slumped over. And the doctor was quickly on to him, and I believe at that time said, well, I think, you know, I think the ambassador's dead. So anyway, we got him into the gurney and raced down to the ambulance to get him taken to our medical center. By the time they reached the ambulance, the team's worst fears were confirmed. On the other side of the world, in Washington, it fell to Spike's wife, Marianne Dubbs, to break the news to his daughter, Lindsay. I think it was right when daybreak was happening in D.C. anyway. She called back and she said, you know, well, they killed him. And at that point, I, you know, I got in a car and drove to where she was at my dad's apartment in Washington, in Bethesda. And, of course, the room was full of, I didn't remember entirely who was there, but it was Foreign Service officers and people, and Marianne was there, and everyone was kind of in this state of dumbfounded numbness. This is really not happening. Forty years later, that bewilderment lingers. Why did the Russians signal the assault before the Americans could contact the men holding Spike? Who fired those four phantom pistol shots? Why was the gang member captured alive at the hotel produced as a corpse only hours later? False reports went out that, quote, Muslim gunmen were responsible, yet the regime claimed the men were rival communists. Fact is, there's never been any evidence of a religious component or motive to the crime, or proof supporting the regime's account. The United States condemned the Afghan regime and the Soviets, both stonewalled the American investigation. An agent run by the CIA finally obtained the Afghan police file on the affair. It was empty. Evidence, conclusions, even best guesses, all gone. A cover-up commenced within hours of Spike's murder, one that continues to this day. For instance, what about the KGB's actions? We're following that trail all the way to Moscow. We've had a word with Sergei Gavrilovich Bakhtarin, KGB Lieutenant Colonel retired, now 86. He was asked, who gave the order to fire? His answer, the order to shoot, was given by the Afghans. Next time, in episode two, we'll put that claim under a microscope as we try to answer the question, who murdered Spike Dubs? Mm-hmm.